Welcome to Defense Unicorns, a podcast for mission-focused innovators. We educate, inform, and provide mission heroes with DevSecOps, cybersecurity, and organizational transformation stories from the world's leading problem solvers. I'm your host, Rob Slaughter, and we're excited for you to join us on this journey. Welcome to today's show. Today, we have an active duty Navy Lieutenant, Artem Sherbinin. Artem, how are, how are you? Doing well, Rob. Thanks so much for having me here. Yeah, absolutely. You you know are very, very much a well-known person within the small niche innovation ecosystem across the DoD. But but I'm I'm sure there's a a lot of folks who are listening who you know this might be the first time they've heard about you. So would love to hear a little bit about your background and and sort of how you got here today. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a 2018 graduate, U.S. Naval Academy, commissioned as an ensign in 2018 as a surface warfare officer, and then jumped right into uh, to my first tour. So very like your standard issue, generic Navy career. Shortly after I had commissioned, you know, 2018, that's when a lot of the DoD innovation, software innovation was happening. And so I was really excited by that, but watching from afar. And then fast forward, you know, I'm on my first deployment, the end of 2019, early 2020. And I'm starting to kind of combine the things I'm reading about, you know, in FedScoop or everything going on in, in the DoD tech space with my real world like operations that I'm undertaking. And it suddenly dawned on me that, hey, there's a lot of like applicability here. And I didn't get, you know, hear anybody in the Navy doing anything in that space. Not because they weren't, but because it wasn't well publicized at that time. So I jumped in and uh, co-authored a white paper with a friend of mine, Richard Kuzma, who's, who was a Naval Academy graduate, but became an Army officer and uh, got, got a chance. So that white paper made its way to Project Maven at the time under USDI, under Secretary of Defense for Intelligence. And that was sort of my first foray into the DoD innovation space. And I use that term very broadly, but um, my primary interest was artificial intelligence and I had no formal background in it had no formal education in it, just an interest, started taking courses and just doing everything I could in my free time to, to jump into that space and see what niche we could carve out for the Navy. And fast forward a couple of years later, I got to stand up the, the Navy's, the surface Navy's first artificial intelligence task force and development team and first data, dedicated data science team. And here I am now. So pretty a conventional start to the career, pretty unconventional continuation. Yeah, talk to us a little bit about that white paper that, that you and Richard wrote. What, what was in that white paper? Yeah, so I was out at sea and I was standing watch in the combat information center. So that's deep in the bowels of the ship from where you control the ship's weapon systems. And naval warfare is based very heavily around the, the kill chain, right? I'm sure a lot of people have read that book in D.C., but that's a term that we've been using for a really long time. And the entire kill chain is based around the premise of uh, finding, fixing, tracking, targeting, and eventually engaging something. But the hardest thing in naval warfare for the last thousand years, and you know, ever since humans set out to sea, was how do you find and fix something's location? And it was a problem set that I got to live in, in real life. Now, we weren't obviously shooting anything in the South China Sea or in the East China Sea, but we were practicing. And uh, you know, this is 2020. We're well into the you know, six years into great power competition with Russia and China. And so it suddenly dawned on me, hey, this is a process that really is going to require some sort of artificial intelligence in, in the future. And that's all I kind of knew. That's 
All I thought was AI is something you slap to the side of a, a problem. Richard was a little more progressed than I am. And as I'm describing this problem set to him, like, hey, having a really hard time finding like Chinese ships and aircraft. He was like, hey, have you ever heard of Project Maven? And have you ever heard of supervised learning? Have you ever heard about computer vision? And I said, no. And uh, he sent me a bunch of stuff to read. And we, we co-authored this white paper about how you could apply what Project Maven was doing, which is overhead imagery, to the maritime domain. And we, we thought that it was not going to be a pretty original idea. We thought that somebody else was already working on it. And we, we sent it to some friends, but it, we got connected to a good friend of ours now named Mike Hunter, uh, now the CEO of Spear AI. And at the time he was at Maven, he was like, hey, no, we, we haven't done this and we'd like to give it a try. And yeah, that's how, where it all started. Yeah. T talk to us a little bit about some of those early struggles to, to work, to go from sort of concept to, you know, what would either resulted in delivery or what ultimately, you know, sort of failed to, to reach what you guys were hoping for from a vision perspective. Yeah. So I don't think we had any initial grand vision of, you know, changing the way the U.S. Navy fights. Richard at the time was transitioning to the army. I was still stuck on a ship, but we thought this would be a really cool idea. And very early on, we suddenly realized that there was no sort of way. Our first challenge was there was no ground up innovation that we knew of that was very successful. There was no 01 or 02 or 03 in the Navy or certainly junior sailor that there in which could consistently take a concept from an idea all the way to execution to program of record. There were a couple niche instances and there's a couple efforts through the Office of Naval Research and you know these various S&T and S&T and RDT and E efforts, but there was nothing uh, that scaled that we knew of. So there was no path for us to follow. And that was the first challenge. The second was even when we actually got like money to do this, uh, well, which was wild to begin with, it started with Mike Hunter sending us a couple of AWS snowballs to San Diego. I had no idea what a snowball was at the time. I had no idea how to stick this thing on a ship or if we were allowed to even do that, to just start collecting data. And, but we did, we, you know, I took an AWS practitioner's course. We, myself and a friend named Alex Buck, a helicopter pilot, coded up a Python GUI in order to interface the snowball with the, the laptop that was going to be pulling data off of ships and 60 Romeos and just kind of put it on a ship that was going on deployment. There were a couple like MOAs and MOUs signed, but I mean, this was a really just a ragtag effort. But the cool thing is there was a lot of there were a lot of people that had done it as as very senior leaders, 06 and above, and you know GS15s who immediately saw potential in what we were trying to do, and we were able to get a lot of guidance from other disparate groups, just like ours in the Navy, who all wanted to get after the same outcome, which was how do you apply artificial intelligence and and how do you apply machine learning algorithms to affect the kill chain? Because that's what big picture what we really wanted to do. So that is to me super impressive. You mentioned your background isn't technical. When you say not technical, how not technical are you? Yeah, so I, well, so both my parents are computer programmers. We, we immigrated from Ukraine in the early 2000s and my dad came over first and he, he didn't speak English, but he wrote code really well and knew JavaScript and C++ and well before knowing English. And that was my childhood. I mean, I, I was surrounded by that and it was kind of shoved down my throat a little bit. So when I got to college, my parents naturally said, hey, 
what do you guys, or what, sorry, what, what were you going to study? And, um, you know, a year into college when it's time to pick a major, I said political science. I want nothing to do with coding. And when it came time to get a master's degree right after the academy, my parents said again, hey, what are you thinking about this time? And I went for national security policy. But my, my like I said, my entire childhood was surrounded by, you know, my dad sitting me down and, and teaching me how to code. And so I, while I didn't code really well, and I'm still consider myself a pretty terrible developer, I, I always understood and gravitated towards the technical. And while I have no formal training in it, I was self-taught. And what I'd like to, what I like to tell people is that what's more important in DOD than raw developer skills is being able to combine your operational experience and the experience as an end user to, with your, your understanding of the tech. Right. You don't need to be able to create the tech, but you need to be able to design it. So you're sort of more like a product manager in these various de innovation commands, we'll call them, than you are as like, you know, hands on keyboard coding away all day kind of guy. So why is understanding the technology important? I think you need to understand the, you know, you need to understand the technology to be able to understand where it's applied correctly. The best example I'll give is. I myself at one point thought AI was something you slap to the side of a missile. And then fast forward three years later, you know, I'm briefing resource sponsors or I'm briefing flag officers. And quite literally a question one time came up was, hey, this project, these projects you're working on are all really interesting, but can we direct quote slap AI to this? And, and that was, it was a funny moment because I got to explain very kindly of it, through my own development, how far I'd come from that point, but explain why, why no, we couldn't do that. So understanding technology beyond just the buzzword matters, right? Because if you don't, then you're going to apply it incorrectly and you'll never get the desired operational outcome. Now, do you think, you know, your skill set, your background, do you think that's unique or do you think that's common across, you know, sailors? airmen, Marines, you know, the, the active duty and, and, you know, civilian force. I think in some ways it's unique solely because of the unique operational experiences I've had. I spent a significant amount of time in the South China Sea and East China Sea. Um, but the, I think that the, the technical skills are actually pretty ubiquitous in my generation, right? I'm 26 years old. That puts me kind of on the edge of millennial and Gen Z. You know, I, I remember watching the keynote in 2008 where Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone. So I'm a little bit past the point of like, I, I knew what pre-iPhone days looked like. But on the whole, I think the skills that I have are pretty ubiquitous across the board. And the ability to think in that way, I think is not unique at all. Because I, I think my entire generation tends to think that way and think of problems as having a, a technical solution and certainly a, a software solution. But I think, again, in order to really understand how that technology can be applied, you, you need to pair it with the relevant operational experience, which you know some airmen, soldiers, Marines will have, and some won't. So let's you know, follow the story at the work that you're doing with Project Maven. What, what ended up happening, and, and is it still ongoing? So, so that project transitioned over, or sorry, I, I'm going to use my words carefully here. It did not transition, as in it did not become a program of record. However, that project is still ongoing using a variety of different funding streams as part of a greater Navy AI effort involving acoustics and, and other various sensor technologies and, and is successful. Now, again, 
I didn't do a whole lot of the technical work. I didn't do a massive amount of, you know, data labeling, for instance. But I think what was really cool about that project was that we proved you can take data from this edge sensor that is not networked whatsoever and, and actually train a model on it. And, and that has since been proved time and time again with a number of different types of data, such as acoustics, FMV data, and electromagnetic signatures, and so on and so forth. And that project gave me the foundation to then know what I, I didn't have and what I needed for, for the next thing when the next thing came a couple years later. Yeah. So talk to us a little bit about the, the journey, most especially some of the low, while you're going through it, did it, did it sort of always seem like you'd be successful, inevitable, or, or do you think something changed along the way? You know, I'll start at the end of the journey right now, or kind of where we are today. I don't think, and maybe this is because I'm personally very hard on myself, but I don't think we've been extremely successful in the Navy tech space, not due to the failings of any one individual or any organization that I could point my finger to. But I think we, we continue to struggle to overcome a number of cultural challenges. And those, anytime I encounter one of those, it, it does become a low point. You know, some of it has been my, my own personal mess up. So on the way, I remember my very first time briefing a resource sponsor and asking for a very substantial sum of money and kind of being laughed out of the room. And I say that in jest, but you know, I was an, with, without a really good understanding of the acquisition space and the acquisition community and how that worked. And I remember feeling extremely embarrassed after the fact. But the more consistent low point was always the realization that all of these things had to come together and, and they weren't and they still haven't in order to not just build a single project, right, but to do this consistently. And what my effort after I left that, or not left, but really kind of turned along that Maven project was to see if I could push the department, which is a crazy thing to say as an, as an O3, to push the Department of the Navy to invest in foundational infrastructure to enable those kinds of projects over and over and over again, to the point where it wasn't, you know, some, some JO learning how to do it on the first time, but that it was possible consistently. And I don't think we've succeeded there. And that's been the biggest low point of all. And I think we will. I think there's a lot of the right people working on the problem, but it's really tough. It's really tough to overcome that institutional inertia. And, you know, what I mean by that is individual low points, like having flag officers tell me, hey, you, you don't have, quite have enough water under the keel, Navy term to mean experience, to be in this office telling me X, Y, or Z, or hey, you don't. And, and those things are partially true, but they can be discouraging, right? So it makes you wonder, do you have to stay in this job for 40, 50 years? to make a small dent and have that one degree course change of impact. And so those I think are the biggest low points. So talk to us a little bit about what those pieces are and, and why is it foundationally important that they eventually all stick stitch together? So the, the mantra that I used when I had stood up task force hopper, which was the surface Navy's AI accelerator. And I, I hate using that term because exactly are you accelerating? But it was, it was a data science team tasked with, or is a data science team tasked with actually building that foundational infrastructure for the, what we call the surface warfare enterprise, so all the components that go into getting a ship sent out to sea and ready to fight. And those, the mantra was people, platforms, and processes. So that came about because in the military, we've got an administrative and an operational chain of command. The goal of the administrative chain of command is to man, train, and equip 
forces for use for employment by operational military commanders. So we took that man train equip and ported it over into people platforms and processes. And, and specifically, that means people as in digital talent and where they're placed, you know, uniformed or civilian personnel, all being working on a, in a single space and collaborating together as opposed to being in disparate offices and not really knowing about each other's unique ideas. Processes is sort of a more nebulous one, but is its governance and strategy and vision and all the various elements that go into acquisitions. It's, it's all the kind of policy trail that makes all of this possible in the bureaucracy, right? Having a great idea is one thing, but being able to implement it really requires a thorough knowledge, not of the technology, but of the uh, of the acquisitions process, of the, the budget cycle and the POM. And that was a tough lesson to learn. And then uh, the last one, platforms, right? None of this, no technology, certainly no software is possible without the right development environments and the right tooling. And even today, I would argue that despite the fact we have access to something like AWS GovCloud, and the various tools available in Azure and AWS for machine learning researchers and for developers is still surprisingly difficult to access. Even data labeling software was something we had to like find and seek out and get an ATO for, right? Authority to operate remains a challenge. You know, all of those things. Without those three elements of foundational infrastructure, right? Development tools, digitally talented personnel, and the right governance, you're not going to be able to make Right, innovation will be a buzzword as opposed to a product in the hands of a soldier, sailor, airman, or marine. Let's talk a little bit about digital talent. One of the things that always stands out to me is that the Navy doesn't have a sailor coder group or program. So the Air Force has, you know, a bunch of software factories with several different programs across, you know, Castle Run, Platform One, and Space Camp, and and many others, and. You know, there's Marine coders and there's the Army Software Factory. Why doesn't the Navy have a sailor coder effort? That's a great question. There was an effort at one point that a, a group of us were interested in pushing. We never got very far beyond a couple of briefs to senior leaders, but we called it the software engineering duty officer. And, and the thought process was, hey, if every other service can do this, and can have uniform personnel with maybe not hands on keyboard all the time, but sort of in that product manager role that I talked about before, why can't we? And we, in, in some ways that, that is going to happen, I think, regardless with, of the effort that we had, had pushed. I think it's inevitable, but I think that the Navy is very much remains wedded and will always be wedded to the idea that, you know, sailors belong at sea, right? And so that skill set is just very different. Uh, than what I think the other services who quite literally have better access to the internet than we do are, you know, are seeking. There's also the element of, you know, why the Navy relies very heavily on its civilian warfare centers, which are sort of this echelon for command, which is designed to provide all that tooling and that, and has invested very heavily in that. And so by transitioning to a sailor-centric approach, you know, you would have to divest from this massive civilian workforce that does that currently provides that uh, that same sort of capability. So, for instance, our software factory, the Forge, is actually under a program executive office, 
So for anyone that doesn't know, Program Executive Office, right, is what manages a DoD program of record. So a weapon system or, you know, even a piece of software that goes to a, a ship or a tank that we procure, an aircraft and so forth. So if you think about that, right, our, our software factory is under a PEO. PEOs are traditionally staffed primarily by a few senior officers, but primarily by government civilians. And so that's that's the model that we've chosen here. It's still very new. I would definitely be wrong to, to call it a failure before it's even gotten a chance to start, but it's definitely different than the other services. Is it something that you think you'll continue to advocate for? And if so, why? I think so. Yeah. I think right now there's not a single place for someone like me to go next, right? I left Task Force Hopper, so, and there isn't really a command for me to go next. And I have lots of friends at the end of, or at the beginning of, sorry, 2022, who all of us want to work in this space. All of us have the experience of working on various projects across the Department of the Navy on the Navy and Marine Corps side and are looking for what our next billet and job is going to be so we can continue that work and continue pushing the boundary of what's what's possible and what tools we can give to our sailors, but there isn't a place for us to go, right? If the, we could, of course, fight for a billet at a program office, or we could fight to go to, you know, I could fight to go back to Task Force Hopper, but that isn't favorable for my career as a surface warfare officer. And that isn't, it, there, there isn't a formal billet there for me to occupy. So we'll continue to fight for it because it isn't really just about having a community of software developers within the service, that community would then have billets associated with it. So it's it's tied more closely with actually leveraging people's skill sets than just having a community with, you know, a designator. So what do you think, what impact do you think that has on retention? I think, I think it directly impacts retention negatively. You know, the retention numbers right now uh, across the Navy, I can't speak for the other services, are dipping. Part of that was predicted by by the during the COVID-19 epidemic or pandemic, sorry, there was a prediction that that would happen after the fact. Um, but I think the the officer corps is, is the more interesting one to look at because what you're seeing across the board, certainly in my community, but but in aviation as well, even at a time when airlines aren't hiring or when you know the the military does seem like an attractive job uh, offering very high bonuses for retention we for instance as an O3 I've been offered a $105,000 bonus to stay for two additional 18 month tours I think that's actually an indication that retention is low and certainly among people with these very niche digital skills right now the sky is the limit and if you're someone that not only has the technical skills but again the operational experience and the recognition of where a technical product can be fielded, you're extremely lucrative to a large number of small startups, as well as very large companies and, you know, such as the Fangs. So can you describe for us, like, what would make talent like yourself more likely to stay, you know, in, in, you know, in the Navy or any of the other branches? I think uh, very simply, the, the shortest answer I'll give this whole conversation is let us work on the problems we're most passionate about with other people that want to, I, I hate to say this, but move fast and break things, right? Like the, every command that I've, I've been to, that's, you know, a traditional ship, right? Like very, very, very different way of doing things. 
a very kind of old way of doing things. The day-to-day -day operations and the problems that I'm working on are aren't exactly the most exciting. You know, leading sailors is really exciting. Going out to sea is exciting. But the day-to-day, -day, you know, business stuff, that's not really fun. But then at a place like Hopper, you know, I got to, the sky was the limit. I got to make whatever I wanted and and uh, really felt like we were pushing the envelope of, of uh, like, what was possible in the Navy. And if I could come into work every single day and have that really excited feeling that I was going to, like, break something and it was going to be actually, like, rewarded, I would stay in this career for the rest of my life. So, you know, one of the benefits you, you talked about was your experience at sea or, or even in port. But, you know, can you describe for us sort of the, the day in the life of a sailor? Yeah. You know, I won't bore you with the specifics of the meetings and whatnot, but we, you know, life at sea is really unique in that it's kind of like living Groundhog Day over and over again. But and at sea, that's understandable, right? You're limited access to internet and I, I, various IP services, and you're really concentrated on the mission that you're out there for. It's kind of like if you're, you know, a soldier and you're deployed overseas in support of a of some sort of operation, right? You're really focused on that. But in port, it's like working in a floating office building, but that office building is, you know, a 20th century industrial firm, right? And uh, you know, you've got old-fashioned business processes, and everyone works around, you know, the captain, the captain's meeting schedule, and you're using these really old computers from the early 2000s with software from the 1990s. You're just trying to write like a performance evaluation, and it's taking you know two hours to do because you have to access like a database and go through the root directory just to. I mean, I'm, it's a really this archaic process. And that's like day-to-day -day life on a ship. Part of that is uh, ships are unique, right? It is an office building that floats, but it's not built to facilitate like collaborative work. And the work that sailors do is hard, right? You have to, it's a metal box floating in the ocean. It's really tough to maintain, right? Salt water corrodes everything. You have to paint, blah, blah, blah. But the the processes and the, the tools that we have combined with those outdated processes, it, it, it makes for a really tough workplace. And I think a new generation of officers and sailors uh, is going to come in and, and look at this and say, hey, this, this is so far from the frictionless life that I lead outside the military. I don't want to stay here. And what I mean by that is, you know, I open my iPhone and I can touch one button and order something off Amazon. It takes me about six hours to order a, a mission critical piece of equipment for my ship. And that delta of expectation between frictionless life on the outside and very frustrating life on the inside, I think affects retention and it affects mission readiness. And uh, it, it actually degrades capability. It, it makes it harder to, to fight and win the next great power war at sea. So what would you say is the percentage of your day-to-day -day life, you know, we'll, we'll start with the shore that is spent struggling with technology? Oh, I'd say... <laughs> couple hours a day, you know, there are times when I'll like avoid getting on my computer so that I could do the thing that I love most, which is talk to sailors and, and facilitate them getting their work done. But I'll tell you, I procrastinate anything that involves touching a computer because it is such a frustrating experience. And I'll offer some examples that aren't, you know, administrative or business use cases. And what I mean by that is like writing a performance evaluation, right? Like that's an administrative task. And if I can do that at home, I, I'd prefer to, so I don't have to use the crappy ship computer. 
But the I'll offer an operational use case. On my first seagoing command, it was a ballistic missile defense capable Aegis guided missile destroyer. Aegis is the name of the weapon system. It was developed in the 1980s, but or sorry, the 1970s, but has obviously advanced quite a bit since then. And we were the newest guided missile destroyer in the fleet at the time. We we commissioned the ship the year that I got there. And so we had the the latest and greatest, right? And as a ballistic missile defense capable ship, we had to practice that capability. That's a that's a tough mission set. And the sitting at the console that I'm using to engage virtual and hopefully not, but one day possibly real ballistic missiles flying towards American allies or the U.S. homeland. And there are software bugs popping up on the screen, right? There are like glitches happening. Like, and that's, that's a frustrating thing to have to like work through and fight through. And, you know, the assessors that are assessing us are saying, oh, that happens all the time. This is what you do and handle. But that shouldn't be the case, right? American sailors should be going to sea with the very best hardware and software. And if we have Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon in the United States, I think we can probably figure out how to make a better GUI that doesn't like freeze up and glitch when you're trying to engage a ballistic missile in outer space. Why do you think we don't solve that? You know, I'm, I'm both now having been in a sailor on a ship, right? An end user of those tools, as well as on the other side, hoping to, to build the future of those tools and working across the acquisition world and, and within the, at the type command and, and so forth. I, no one ever asked me when I was an end user what tools I needed. And no one ever asked me to beta test those tools. And when they did ask me, actually once, none of the things that we highlighted, which were pretty glaring issues in a, in a piece of software, were, were resolved before it was launched to the fleet and is now used across the board. So when I got to Task Force Hopper, that was our entire like mantra was, it was add value to sailors, right? Because we were sailors, we were uniform personnel fixing our arguably our own problems. And uh, that was the model we developed was that, you know, we would, we had civilian data scientists, but we had uniform subject matter experts who knew exactly what not to do. Um, but that, that a kind of end user feedback loop, that's a rare thing in the Navy and I suspect the rest of DOD. So talk to us a little bit about, you know, that Hopper team. If, if the HR system was able to respond and rally around you and you got to work on, you know, some of the, the, the gooey issues that you kind of just discussed, do you think that team or some you know, some combination of that team plus other folks could have actually solved that issue? I think the, you know, the two kind of answers there. One is on the HR front, Task Force Hopper and every other Navy AI task force and innovation command, you know, I put that in quotation marks as I say it out loud, is staffed by uniform personnel who are double stuffed into billets. And what I mean by that is they are not, there is no billet for them. So the type command or the, you know, your fleet command or whatever entity has chosen, a COCOM has chosen to stand up one of these, uh, either relies on reservists, which works. It's a, it's a very successful model because a lot of reservists come in with outside experience in the private sector or by active duty personnel, such as myself, who are stuffed into another billet. And then 
they just don't do that other thing and they actually work on this on the side. So if you want to scale any of these efforts, you the HR system needs to produce those billets. But again, that's a double-edged sword, right? If you're trying to fill operational billets on board ships and aircraft squadrons and aircraft carriers and so forth, and there aren't enough of those right now because of a, a significant retention challenge in officers and sailors and a recruitment challenge, all the services were thousands short on their recruitment goals. Those billets, the innovation billets, right, they become a secondary priority for the HR system. Now to your question, if we could have fixed the the GUI, yeah, I think I think we could have. I'm a crappy developer. I maybe I couldn't have, but you know, the some of the people that we had on that team and some of the people that I have gotten a chance to work with on other teams, absolutely. It, the challenge was is never the tech, right? It's it's always the culture and it's programmatics, right? It's the how do you how do you work with the program executive office to make a correction and to force the prime contractor or the subprime who was probably told to to build that piece of software how do you force them to fix it that's the greater challenge we talked about retention from a digital talent perspective but from an average sailor perspective do you think the quality of software directly impacts retention i think it's the the software isn't the root cause itself Right? It's the day-to-day -day workflow. It's the processes that you're using. It's when you come into work, is your experience, like are you encountering friction at every step of the way to get your day-to-day -day job done? And I think software plays a huge role in that in the 20th, 21st century. Sorry, actually, it did in the 20th century too. And uh, I, I think that that's, that's the root cause, right? It's that delta that we talked about earlier between expectation gleaned from living in this frictionless world to reality when you get on board a ship or check into an aviation squadron or join a marine unit and you're like wait we're still doing it this way and you know the irony of that is every junior officer at some point i think is taught hey don't ever let one of your ju junior enlisted personnel tell you oh sir ma'am we're we've always done it that way as don't ever let that be the answer and yet we somehow for some weird reason we get that answer and response all the time from senior leadership or from a program office when we demand change. And that's definitely a very frustrating part of working in DoD. Yeah, one of the things that you commented on was that it's never the tech, it's always the culture. Can, can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, the, we know what's in the art of the possible, right? We, I'll just use my, my niche area of, of machine learning right? We know what's possible uh, in the supervised learning space. And we know we've known what's possible for about 10 years now. And we know that we can match those realistic technical possibilities with operational use cases and combine them to get a really great product to put on a ship and make it extremely, you know, infinitely better at doing a certain task. And yet it's, the, the the challenge you always run into is how do I convince senior leadership that there's a return on investment here? Perhaps even how do I convince senior leadership who might not really understand how this works, right? If you go, go and run around the halls of the Pentagon with a brief about some niche supervised learning use case, good luck having anyone listen to you, right? And the, the next one is the discomfort of maybe hearing why the idea is a good idea from 
someone that's really junior, right? My, again, my first round of Pentagon briefings, I was a 02. I'm only an 03 now. We haven't made it that far. <laughs> Not saying that's any better, right? There's, there is sort of an aura immediately. You, you go to brief a undersecretary or an, an admiral or a general, and there is sort of like a, hey, why is this person in the room with me right now? And that's not everybody. I've had some amazing experiences with senior leaders who were not just willing to listen, but supportive and would call out others who who weren't. But you occasionally will run into that. And all it takes is one unhappy GS-15 who who's retired as an 06 15 years ago to stop you, right? To stop your white paper from going up to the next level or to stop to stop your funding, right? Especially if you're re- relying on these niche pots outside of the palm. And uh, that's really disheartening sometimes. So one of the things you talked about is that even at the Pentagon, people were using the term, you know, slap AI on it. Why can't people just slap AI on it? You know, so much of, without turning this into like a super technical conversation, but so much of, so many of the conversations I've had, both with senior leadership and even in a, in more technical environments was Hey, what is the what is the AI use case? Like where does machine learning play a role in administrative use cases or where does it play a role in increasing the lethality of our forces? So little of the conversation was about what really matters, which is data. Right? You can't slap AI onto it because it's not the model that matters. The model matters a little bit. It's the data, right? And it's all the it's the process of acquiring the massive amount of data that it takes to train a really robust model. And that's the, the availability of data, the quality of data, certainly as you get into more complex use cases, like why you can't slap AI onto a standard missile. Standard missiles are surface-to-air missiles used by the US Navy. They're, they're just called standard missiles. Is data availability, right? There's no data available to, to train a model that would improve the probability of kill of that missile, because that isn't something that we ever thought we would need to collect when we palmed for that missile in the 1970s. And uh, that's why you can't slap AI to things. <laughs> yeah. One of the things I always appreciate about you is just just how passionate you, you are. You know, one of the things that you mentioned was that you, you know, were born in the Ukraine. With recent and current events, do you find yourself reinvigorated and even more passionate given how close to home it is to you? Yeah, absolutely. I I still have family there. You know, I call my grandparents every Sunday, 10 a.m. And I remember the early, they live in Kiev, and I remember the early days of the war. There was one time we were on a call, and you could hear the sonic boom of a of a ballistic missile flying overhead, and then you could hear the explosion in the background on the FaceTime call. Absolutely reinvigorated my passion for this. Right around February, late February, right the war started on the 24th, and right around late February is when. I had I was about a month into being on at this new command. I had left Task Force Hopper, and I was feeling kind of low about not getting to work on the things I was most passionate about. But then the realization that hey, the the tools that we could build one day and then share with our Ukrainian allies, or possibly one day use ourselves against an authoritarian regime like Russia or China, that that definitely reinvigorated my passion for what I do. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about you know that why especially in context of, do you actually think as a community we're going fast enough? Well, I don't think we're, I think the answer is always going to be no, we're not going fast enough. But I think that's always the answer when it comes to these things, right? I think Steve Jobs wanted the Mac in like a year 
and that was like 1981 and then it was until like 1984 when the thing came out right so it's no one's ever moving fast enough whether it's government or or public sector or sorry private sector but um I think especially right now, we're at an inflection point in, in, in world history, right? There's, I'll use the example of Admiral Phil Davidson's testimony before Congress, I think last year, where he said a war with China is allowed to happen in the 2020s. And that's since become known as the Davidson window. You know, we can debate that for hours, and I don't necessarily believe in the Thucydides trap and the notion that anything like that is inevitable. But I think that the challenge to liberal democracy around the world from authoritarian regimes is very real. And Ukraine proves that. And so does China's response to recent events in Taiwan. And so we need to be moving a lot faster than we are to meet that challenge. Because the the goal shouldn't be to be ahead of those countries. We already know that American equipment in the military industrial complex clearly outpaces Russia from how we've seen our equipment fare against theirs on the battlefields in Ukraine. But we shouldn't want to just be two times better or even 10x better, right? We, we want to be, we want to, to be 50 times better, right? Complete overmatch. And to get to that point, I think we really do need to move faster. So what advice do you have for the folks listening to, to help all of us move faster? I think the, the first piece of advice I'll give is like, especially if you're a uniformed junior officer, soldier, sailor, airman, marine, you know, enlisted or, or officer, it doesn't matter. Learn your community and learn the things that, like, understand the why and the fine details of your own challenges super well, right? Going out and fixing problems that are way over your head is fun. I've tried it. But unless you really know what, you're, what problem you're trying to fix, you're going to fix the wrong thing or you're not going to get very far. So that's the first piece of advice I'll give. The second is learn the big picture. It doesn't matter how junior you are. No one said you can't take a class at Defense Acquisition University and understand defense budgeting or the POM, right? You hear people raging against the acquisition cycle who have never been acquisition professionals themselves or have learned anything about acquisitions, right? That no one said that you can't do that. Go go buy a book and, and learn about it. Go And then the, the last thing is seek out opportunities even where they don't exist. The white paper was that started the, the Maven Maritime Awareness effort that we, we did, that, that didn't exist, right? The Maven was an Air Force project focused on overhead imagery over you know, Syria, Iraq, Afghanistan. Um, Hopper, uh, that, there was like an idea to name something Task Force Hopper. Like that's it. And it's progressed so much in the last year and a half. And then you know, another effort that I, I was a part of, HALO, the Department of the Navy Holistic AI Liaison Office, literally no one wanted it to exist. <laughs> and so, but we, we sought out and created that opportunity for ourselves. And I, I highly recommend anyone that's passionate about this to go do that because the tools we have available to connect with people are incredible now. And you can connect to very senior leaders in the Pentagon a lot easier today than you could, you know, 10 years ago. Now, flip it on you a little bit. What advice would you give yourself? You know, you, you know, you're, you're an O2 working through the Pentagon and, and try to form this, this software team, like truly organically, what advice would you give yourself? The number one piece of advice I'd give myself is to listen to the people that have been around for a while, a little bit more. 
And, you know, I, there were, there's a really close mentor of mine, now captain, retired John McGonagall, Navy captain, so Navy 06, who, uh, if, you know, very frequently would remind me to shut my mouth at the right times because I am really passionate about this. But I didn't, despite no amount of reading, no amount of energy I poured into understanding the system that I was was somewhat raging against, no amount could make up for the the experience that I didn't have. And having having people there to to pull me by the collar a couple times and say, hey, that's not how you want to go about this. That was really important. And there it took me a while to realize when I needed to listen a little more and to close my mouth. So that's the advice I would give. And I, and I offer that to everybody as well. Like if, if you want to quote unquote innovate, and I don't say that completely sarcastically, but it, if you want to build things that add value in DOD, it, you will need to work within the system and not try to fight the system the whole time. And the people that have been around the longest in the system probably know how to do that best. So the, the, the last question I have for you that we, we asked towards the, the end of the show is, you know, you're, you're one of our first you know, dozen guests or so, and you know, why should people keep listening to this podcast? I think the coolest thing about this podcast, cause I, I I've listened to every episode since the first one. I remember I was really excited for you guys to start is that almost everyone that you've had on, on the podcast I've, I've reached out to since, and I have a lot of friends who listen to the podcast who have also reached out to those folks. And so the. DoD tech community, despite being a few years old now, and, and when I say tech community, I mean the, the modern iteration of it, the software factories and, and your various, you know, Jakes and whatnot of the world is still kind of new and it's still kind of small. And a lot of us have a lot of lessons learned and things to share. And so I urge people to keep listening to, to get those lessons, but actually to make the connections with the people who have been there and done that and to, to not just like get advice, but to make some real friends, which has been a really, probably the most fun part of this, of this journey. Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Artem, for, you know, taking time on the show. You know, it's a true pleasure. Your passion, intelligence just shines through everything. You're well-spoken. Your, your career is, I think, going to be incredibly bright. And I, I just am very, very fortunate to be on the sidelines, just watching you continue to grow and make change. Thanks, Rob. I really appreciate you having me and for the conversation. This was awesome. This is your host, Rob Slaughter. Thanks for listening to Defense Unicorns, a podcast. We have amazing guests coming the next couple of episodes. So subscribe now so you get notified when we release new content.